Why don't we turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. And we're going to spend the next two weeks looking at John chapter 17. And I'm, this week, I'm going to try and show you the whole of John chapter 17. We're going to try and see the big sweep, and then we'll pick up some more of the details next time. Because it's one of those bits of the Bible that feels like, it feels like holy ground. And in some ways, all of God's word is like that. But there are some parts that feel so rich and significant and powerful that we really all we can do is skate over the surface and pray that God would show us um, some things that he wants us to see. Because in John chapter 17, what happens is Jesus, as we have seen over the last few weeks, has been speaking to his disciples. He's been preparing them for them to leave. But he's now finished speaking to his disciples. And he now turns to pray. We get to listen to Jesus praying. It's a pretty significant moment, right? What's he going to pray about? Knowing that the next day he's going to die on a cross. What's he going to pray about? I'm going to read right through John chapter 17. I'd love you to follow it um, if you've got a phone or a Bible or something with you. Um, Otherwise, just listen. John chapter 17, verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they've obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you've given me comes from you, for I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they're still in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your words, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. 
my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Wow. It's really precious, don't you think? Don't you think that moment when Jesus says to his Father, I'm coming to you now. That stunning thought. Jesus knows that he's coming. He's going to his Father. So here's the question. What is it that occupies Jesus' thinking? What are the big themes? What are the big things that Jesus is experiencing and feeling and praying on that night before he dies on a cross? And the reason this is going to help us is because it's going to give us an unrestricted view of the things that really matter. You know when you book cinema, uh, uh, cinema tickets or theatre tickets and it says, You're, you know, this view is restricted. It's like, oh, here's one I can afford. Oh, I can't see anything. Sheesh, can you turn me down a little bit? I, I, I really feel like I'm, ooh, that's good. Or it's like when you, um, you, you know, it's, it's when it gets cold and you put your hood up. And then you have a restricted view. You know, someone says something over here and you turn your head, but your hood doesn't move. And you're like, I'm now just seeing the inside of my hood. <laughs> and I think often as we go through life, we experience something of a restricted view. We don't see things as they truly are. We see some stuff and the stuff we see, we see okay. But there's a whole world of stuff that is out of our view. There's a pillar in the way. There's a hood in the way. There's something that blocks our view. So let's let Jesus blow open our minds. An unrestricted view of what's really going on. And I think there are three things. Three big things I want to pull out. And then next week we're going to have to dig into lots of the detail. And there's going to be bits you go, oh, he didn't touch on that verse. Okay, I'll do it next week. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. But the first big theme I want us to see is that what occupies Jesus' thinking, in fact, I would say the first thing that occupies his thinking is the glory that lies at the center of everything. There is a glory that lies at the center of everything. It's, a, it's the unifying theme. It's the thing that holds everything else together. You know when you get a book? The, the book is held together by the spine, right? You could pull out some of the pages and you might spoil the story, but the book is still intact. But if you rip off the spine, then the whole thing falls apart. The glory of God is the spine of the universe. You could rip out a few pages from history. You could rip out a few things that happened and you'd lose a bit of stuff. But if you take away the glory of God, then nothing makes sense. 
It all falls apart. And Jesus, as he prays, can you see the first thing he prays about is glory. In those first five verses, he prays about glory. Glorify your son so your son may glorify you. I've brought you glory on earth, verse 4. And now, Father, glorify me with the presence, with the glory I had with you before the world began. You see, this is what is in Jesus' mind. Glory, glory. Which means we've got to stop and go, well, what does that mean? What is glory? What is this glorifying glory thing all about? Well, the word glory in the Old Testament comes from a Hebrew word, and literally the word means heavy. It means something that is weighty. Not something frivolous and trivial. Not something bubbly and light. But something solid and weighty, serious. And this is why I think glory is so important for us to get hold of. Because what we desperately need in our lives is something weighty. Something that will ground us. See, I wonder sometimes whether our lives can be taken up with the trivial. And what happens is the trivial is fun, right? The trivial is easy. The trivial is streamers and party poppers and we have a happy time and it's all good. But when things go wrong, there's no weight. It's like in a boat, Right, you put ballast in the bottom of a boat. You put some weight in a boat so that when the storm comes, there's something that holds the boat, that weighs the boat so that it's steady. Or to put it another way, it's like a weeble. Right? This is a weeble. Isn't that terrifying? That is what I was given to play with as a child. I was given loads of them. Little weebles, and they came with airplanes and helicopters. And do you know what the slogan, the catchphrase for weebles was? Anyone know? Exactly. Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. Here's the great thing about a weeble. You can't push it over. You can try. You can poke it in the face. And it will wobble, but it won't fall down. Why? How did the weebles achieve this astonishing feat? Because in the bottom here, there's a weight. Isn't it brilliant? And it means that whatever you do to the weeble, it just comes right back up again. And I want to say to you that if we could get hold of the glory of God, if we could see something of the weightiness of God, then it would function for us. As the means by which, even if we wobble, we won't fall down. That's what glory means. Glory is about having a weight in your life that keeps you firm. How on earth is it that Jesus Christ could face the cross and not run away? Because he saw the glory of God. Because he knew that there was something so weighty in our universe. Let me just unpack this a little bit more. I really want us to get this theme of glory. And then we're going to see why Jesus prays the way he does. Because it still seems a little bit odd to us that Jesus, I think, that Jesus says, glorify your son. That seems an odd thing to pray. You know, if I stood before you, okay, John T is going to lead the prayers today. Oh, good. Okay, here I come. 
Hello, I'm going to lead the church. Heavenly Father, please would you glorify me? I think some of you will be going, oh, hang on a second. That doesn't sound right. So how come Jesus gets to pray that? How come Jesus is allowed to pray, glorify me? Well, let's, let's back up. Let's see a bit of the glory. Let me give you a brief history of glory. You want some weight in your backside? Here's, some, here's a brief history of glory. Firstly, you have to understand that glory is something that describes the essential quality of who God is. There is an essential glory, something that God is in his essence, that he has always been. So Jesus in verse 5 talks about a glory that he had before the world began. So before anything else existed, there was God and he was glorious. Glory is a word that kind of sums up the sum total of all of God's attributes, all that God is. This is why glory means heavy, right? Because it is God. Everything that God is in all his infinite and eternal perfections is glory. You see, God is not something trivial. People have turned God into sort of a tooth fairy in the sky. The tooth fairy is trivial. The tooth fairy is light. She doesn't demand much from you, just a tooth every now and again. And you can forget about her. She, blah, blah, blah. But God, God is eternal and weighty and glorious and majestic. In his very essence, it's who he is. And that glory, this is why the glory is the spine of the universe. This is why the glory is the weight that holds the universe in place, because that glory was there before the world began. Glory predates our world. What was there before the world? Glory. And this glory, then the second stage of the glory story, oh, that's good. The second stage of the glory story is glory displayed. You see, this essential glory, this, this quality of God, this God who is magnificently weighty acted to display his glory. And he acted to display his glory by speaking. He spoke, let there be light, and there was light. And he, did, he displayed his glory in his creation. It is an outshining display of glory. And so by looking at creation, you get a little glimpse of God. God isn't in creation, remember? He's before creation. His glory is outside of creation, but it sort of shines in what he's made. In the same way that a work of art, we went to the National Gallery this, no, we didn't. Where did we go? Take Britain this week. I just dropped that in because it sounds impressive. <laughs> I don't know much about it. But anyway, when you're seeing the works of art, you're seeing the glory of the artist on display. It would be weird to look at the painting and go, oh, there's Turner. That's not Turner but it's part of the glory of Turner. And so it is with God. God has displayed his glory in the world that he made. That's why the world is so blinking awesome. Because God is so weighty and glorious. You see, if God was a little fairy, a little fairy dust fluffy thing, he would only create a naff little world. But a weighty God creates a weighty universe, which means you can look up into the stars and feel so small. You find your breath taken away by the sheer weightiness of what you see. And all you're seeing 
is a display of God's glory. Imagine if you could see glory itself. But the third stage in the glory story is glory exchanged. This essential glory of God that he displayed in creation has been exchanged. You see, this is what humanity did. According to Romans chapter 1, it said, human beings exchanged the glory of God. That's what they did. They exchanged it for other things, things that they made. It's like they went into a second-hand shop and said, look, I've got this thing, this glory. I don't really, I'm not bothered about it. Can I exchange it for something else? What can I get in exchange? Well, I can give you a little statue of a snake if you want. Ah, oh, terrific, we'll take that. And the folly at the heart of humanity is that this weighty glory has been exchanged for trivial and light and fluffy things that do not provide the weight that we need. It is, the, it is the foolish, most foolish thing that's ever been done. It is the most wicked thing that's ever been done. That we would treat this glorious God in that way. And that explains so much of why our world just doesn't cope when the storms come. Because when our world gets pushed, it does fall down. And all around us, we see people who do fall down because they've got no weight. They've got no glory. And so we live in this world. And God, the glorious God, has been exchanged. And we are left with froth and meaninglessness. And God is angry, rightly angry, that we would treat him that way. And yet... Here's the fourth thing, and this is where we're getting to this prayer. Oh, man, this is, considering there's so much in this prayer, it feels bad we haven't got to it yet. Um, and that is um, saving glory. You see, here's the stunning thing. This God of all glory who is weighty and majestic, he made a plan to save this world from its trivial, flighty, falling overness, to save this world from the anger that we deserve. And so God stepped down into this world he veiled his glory. He came as a baby and his glory for a moment was hidden from view. You'd look at the baby and you'd go, it's a baby. It's just a baby. And when this baby that was born at Bethlehem, who we're about to celebrate again this Christmas, when this baby was a seven-year-old, you'd have looked at him and you'd have gone, yep, it's a seven-year-old. And yet that seven-year-old is the glory, is the eternal God. And yet he shrunk himself down to become a human being, to hide his glory, to set his glory aside, even to go to a cross. Yeah, of course there were glimpses. Throughout his life there were glimpses. You can't hide it completely. He turns water into wine and he walks on the sea and he feeds the hungry. He opens the eyes of the blind. He raises the dead. Of course, there's some. But his glory was hidden. Until you get to chapter 17 and verse 1. And Jesus says, Father, the hour's come. This is it. 
this is the moment that we've been going through. This is the moment that we have been planning. This is the moment. Glorify your son. Show the world who I truly am. Show the world the sheer, magnificent, weighty, eternal beauty of your son. That's what he's planning. This isn't some random human bloke going, Dear Heavenly Father, please glorify me. This is the eternal Son of God who is worthy of all glory, saying, Father, I set my glory aside. Now it is time. It is time for my glory to be seen. And do you know what he's going to do the very next day? He's going to go to a cross and die. And then he's going to rise from the dead and return to his Father. That's the glory. Because it's there in that moment as Jesus dies on the cross that apparent it appears to be so weak. And yet in that moment as Jesus dies on the cross, he's dying for us. He's dying to save us. That's what he's praying about. You granted me authority over all people so that I might give eternal life to those you've given me. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. He's saying, Father, this is the moment I'm going to die on a cross so that these people who exchanged your glory might be saved and might see your glory and might know you and might live forever, not live under the judgment and death that sin and exchanging you brings, but instead live to see you as you truly are. Father, this is it. This is the moment. This is the work that the Father gave the Son to do. And the son says to his father, yes, I've brought you glory on earth by finishing that work. Even to death on the cross. So now, father, glorify me. Glorify me back with the glory I had with you in the very beginning. What a stunning prayer. And as the Father glorifies the Son, the Son glorifies his Father. And the true glory that has always been the spine of the universe is once again seen in all its beauty. So that you can know him. So that you can have a weight in your life, a weight of glory that means no matter how much you wobble, you don't fall down. This is what Jesus was doing. Jesus is no innocent victim going to a cross. He's no poor little martyr, poor little Jesus going to die. He's the God of all glory, finishing the work, bringing glory to his Father and revealing glory to you so that you could know what you were created for. That's the glory that lies at the center of everything. And I've got to say to you, when you get an unrestricted view of the glory of God in the face of Christ, it changes everything. And it means that when those things come that knock you, when you get pushed, the glory of God lifts you back up. says, no, carry on. I'm in control. Of course, this challenges us, right? Because often we fill our lives with the trivial We fill our lives with the things that don't matter, that don't last, that are temporary. In fact, the way that we tend to talk about glory is a moment of glory. I have my moment of glory. 
We've all had a moment of glory, right? In a school assembly when you got the reading prize for reading The Hungry Caterpillar or something. And everyone cheered. That was your moment of glory. But this is no moment of glory. This is eternal glory. And I want to plead with you not to settle for a moment of glory. Because most of us are living our lives hoping that we get just a moment of glory. A moment when our lives are okay. A moment when everything that we hope to have happened has happened. A moment when we can sit down and go, oh, that went well. That's too small ambition. Seriously, if you are successful in your career and you retire with a good pension and a nice house and a great family and you feel satisfied with your life, you've set your sights too low. You've set it too low. You've settled for too little. Because there's a glory to be known which lasts forever. That's the glory that drove Jesus. That's the glory that needs to captivate us. Here's the second thing. We're going to go faster. That was the first thing was the longest thing. Here's the second thing. Not only was Jesus thinking about glory though. The second thing is um, the people that lie close to his heart. He's thinking about the glory that lies at the center of everything, but he's also thinking about the people who lie close to his heart. You notice how much this prayer is about his people, his disciples? Now, some people do this weird thing with this prayer, right? They go, the verses 6 to 19, Jesus praying for his disciples, the ones in front of him, his 11 disciples in front of him. And then from verse 20, he prays for everybody else. I think verse 20 says the opposite, actually. I think verse 20 says, when he says, my prayer is not for them alone, I pray also for those who believe in me through their message. He's saying, all that I've just prayed for my disciples, I'm praying that for all of my people. That makes sense? So as we read what he's praying for his disciples, he's praying that. He says that it's not just for them, it's for all who are going to believe. That means you. If you believe in the message, on that night, Jesus was praying for you. Get that in your head. He was praying for you. I'm not just praying for these. I'm praying for all who will believe in me through their message. That's you. That means that the thing that was on Jesus' heart, the thing that was on Jesus' mind, was the glory of God and the preciousness of his people. And you may have noticed as we read through it, Jesus describes his people as those that the Father has given to him. He says it over and over again. In fact, it's really very obvious. So have a look, um, just see it with me. Um, Verse 2, you granted him authority over all peoples that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. It says it again in verse 6, I've revealed you to those whom you gave me. They were yours, you gave them to me. Um, he says it again, um, again and again, all over the place, um, where he's talking about the ones that you gave me. And you get it again right at the end in verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me. Why does Jesus instinctively think of his people as those that the Father has given to him? It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? You see, I think we tend to think that Christians are people who uh, believe in Jesus or have chosen to follow Jesus. Would you ever describe yourself as someone who the Father has given to the Son? I think the reason it really matters is because it shows you how precious this gift is. 
It shows you what a treasured thing it is that the Father would give you to his Son. You see, presumably, if you love someone, you, you don't give them rubbish gifts, right? I mean, let's face it, we've all given some rubbish gifts in our time, let's be honest. We can all face up to that, right? Some of us have really failed. You've given it, you thought, this is a bad one, this is a bad one. But when you really love someone, you want to give them something that is valuable. And so here's the deal. The Father so loves the Son that he says, I want to give you something. I want to give you a people. And we all may go, oh, that's nice. Makes me feel like some precious little special present. Unfortunately, no, you're not. Actually, by nature, we're not, remember. We're God exchanges. It isn't that there's something precious about us. It's that Jesus makes us precious. So the Father gives us to the Son. So it's actually like, sort of like, you know when someone gives you a present, you have to then make? I'm like, why do I have to make this? I, I just make it. I, I don't want to make. This is, I, I, no, I love presents like that. But when the Father gives the people to the Son, the Father gives these people to the Son and says, Son, your, your, your mission, your work is to make these people beautiful. And that was God's plan. God's plan was that he would give a people to his son who Jesus would die for, who Jesus would save, who Jesus would wash clean and make beautiful. The Father has given you to his son. And Jesus then revealed the Father, verse 6, I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. And as Jesus revealed himself, the those who are his people, do you see what we're told? They obey that word. They accept the word that Jesus gives, verse 8. They knew with certainty, verse 8. They believed. And so who is it that the Father gives the Son? It's all who will accept, believe, obey, hear the word of Jesus. And so that is who is on Jesus' heart as he thinks about going to the cross. He's going to the cross to die for these people that the Father has given to him, who believe in him. And he's going to die for them so that they can be beautiful. But now look at his concern, you see. He's concerned for them because he's worried that they're going to remain in the world. Verse 11, I will remain in the world no longer, but they're still in the world and I'm coming to you Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction. You see, what Jesus is saying is, I'm leaving now, and I'm leaving these people, my precious people that I've died for and I'm, I've revealed you to, I, I'm leaving now to return to heaven. And I protected them when I was with them, but now they're on their own. Father, would you protect them? Jesus prays for your protection. He loves you and he prays for your protection. I don't know if you've ever had to drop someone off, you know, leave someone behind somewhere. You know, I guess at some point we'll have to take our kids off to somewhere when they eventually leave and, you know, oh, sorry, when they sadly leave. And you know, there'll be a moment, won't there, where you sort of kick them out the door, you shut the door behind them, you drive away. I protected them. While I was with them, I protected them by the power of my kindness and generosity. But now they're on their own. 
<laughs> that's what Jesus, that's how Jesus is feeling about his disciples, right? And yet he doesn't freak. He doesn't panic and go, they've got no hope. They've got no hope. They're going to die. Instead, he says, it's okay. Father, you protect them. Protect them by the power of this name. The power of your name. The name stands for God's authority. It stands for God's character. It stands for God's glory. He's not weak. Protect them, Father. Keep them. So look, if you're feeling weak, you ever feel weak as a Christian? You feel like a weeble, but you feel like you might not get up again? I want you to know that Jesus prayed for you. He prayed that God would protect you. Isn't that a stunning thought? And in fact, later on in the Bible, it tells us that Jesus didn't just pray this once. He continues to pray it now. He's still praying for you. Right now, he is in heaven interceding with his father. What's he praying? Well, presumably one of the things he's praying is what he was praying the night before he died. Protect them, Father. Protect them. It's hard. They're struggling. Protect them. That name, that power, that authority, protect them. Jesus is praying for our protection. Which is good news because it means it's not down to you. It's not down to your strength, your skill, your performance, your ability. It's all down to his power, his protection. And then the third, the, kind of the other thing he's praying for them is, in verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. What does sanctify means? It means to set them apart. It means that they would be distinct and different. So he's saying, Father, these precious people that you've given me, would you protect them? In fact, don't just protect them. Let's do more than that. Don't just protect them. Would you make them shine? Would you make them stand out? Would you make them beautiful? Would you make them holy in the world? Would you make them so that people can see something of my glory in them? Jesus is praying that we would be sanctified, that we would be distinct. And all of that is because of the third big priority on his heart. Glory, people. Here's the third big priority, and we're going to finish with this. is the world. The world that desperately needs to know. As Jesus goes to the cross, I think those are his three big focuses. Glory, the pe his people, and the world. At which point, some of you, if you're still vaguely with it and cunning, might say, no, nah, no, nah, hang on a second. In fact, he explicitly says, I'm not praying for the world. Right? He says that in verse 9. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world. It seems to be quite clear. So how come I've managed to make one of his big priorities something he says he's explicitly not praying for? How does that work? Well, because everything that Jesus is praying is driving towards the world. And I'll quickly show you what I mean, and we'll probably pick up some more of this stuff next time. When he says, I'm not praying for the world, what he means is, I'm not praying a general, bland, oh, God bless all of them. He's saying, no, my precious people, protect them, sanctify them. But why? You see, here's the question. Why doesn't Jesus just take them all with him? Tell you what, let's all go. 
don't stay here. He's nasty here. Why don't we all leave this stinky world where they've exchanged God's glory? Why don't you hold my hand and we're going to fly to Neverland. Come with me and let's go. Second star to the right, straight until morning. Let's go. Why doesn't he take them with them? He, he says, you need to stay in the world. In fact, in verse 18, he says, as you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. Whoa, 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 hang on a second. So now we're being told Jesus isn't leaving them in the world. He's sending them into the world. That's very different. So yes, they're going to be on their own, but they're not on their own in a kind of abandoned, abandoned. They're on their own in a kind of mission sent. You go, people. Go into this world. Go live this distinctive light bright life in this world. And so Jesus, listen to how he prays now. My prayer is not, this is verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray for all who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, we'll have to do this next week, may they also be in us. Here we go. So that the world may believe. So that the world would believe. So Jesus says, I want you to protect them. I want you to sanctify them. I want you to unite them. I want you to make them one just as me and you are one. Make them one. I want them to be united, but not just so they have a nice time, but so that the world would see. Because Jesus' great passion is that the world would know his glory. And he says it again in verse 22. I've given them the glory you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me so they may be brought to complete unity, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved me. You see, Jesus' big heart is that the world would know. That's why he's praying. He's praying for the glory of God, the spine of all human history. He's praying for the precious people that the Father has given to him. And he's praying because the whole world desperately needs to know this message. Because the whole world needs to know this glory. And so verse 24, you almost pick up the pain, don't you, of Jesus leaving them. Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. I want them to be with me, but they, they need to stay. Because how else does the world know unless my people stay? I think these are the big themes on the heart of Jesus the night before he died. And I wonder, perhaps, as we go into a week of prayer, whether these might become the big themes on our hearts. That we might ask God to unrestrict our view, to remove the pillars, to pull down the hood, whatever the image is, to put weight in our weeble, <laughs> so that we would know, so that we wouldn't pray trivial prayers that say, oh, Father, please, would you, you know, help me to have a nice time? And it's fine, to pray. it's fine to pray about all sorts of things, but do we ever pray about the weighty things? Do we ever pray about the glory of God? Hallowed be your name. Let the world see your glory. You're glorious. You're magnificent. Let's pray weighty prayers. We pray for God's people. Protect your people, Lord. Sanctify us. Make us strong. We feel so weak, but make us strong so that the world would know, so that all might see the glory of God. So that London might see the glory. Doesn't London desperately need the glory of God? Don't your friends? So that the world would know.
I think those are some of the things that Jesus prayed. And I'm going to challenge us to take those three themes and work them into our prayers this week. As we spend this week with a special effort in prayer. Why don't we pray? And then next week when we come back, I'm going to pick up some of the more details, get into a bit more of the kind of technical details of what Jesus is praying. But hopefully these themes will help us. Oh, Father, glorious, glorious Father, the one who is glorious from before eternity, the one who has displayed your glory in all that you've done, the one whom we have rejected and exchanged your glory for triviality, and yet the one who in grace sent your Son in saving glory, that we might see your glory once again that we might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Father, this afternoon, give us weight in our weevil, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.